Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Twenty-eighth of October, Friday. Wild winds race ragged, the starlings sport and shoal. Golden leaves, sherry warm, stream head height across the canal. A flash of brave blue, a kingfisher swims the leafy cataracts of air. It's a mild and breezy night here, leaf-blown and peaceful. The moon has just dipped below the horizon, and it's now a night as moonless and starless as any of the crow-black nights of Claregob under Milkwood. This is the narrowboat Erica, narrow-casting into the dark. I'm so glad you come. Come inside a while and welcome aboard. If you can hear a strange sound in the distance, it's just the duck having a late-night forage along the hull of the boat. October is drawing to a close, and its closing brings with it old ceremonies brought back again. Yes, commodified, repackaged, commercial, but for all that they point to deeper ideas, deeper patterns and cycles of thought which have never quite gone away. The older yearly markers, thin times, points of collective memory and reflections of stories from which we may have come adrift and lost contact with, but somehow continue to bob and ebb in our social and individual consciousness. Thin times of the year that remind us of something even if we cannot quite remember what, and whose nebulous images have long since lost their sharp definitions. And this time of year always throws me back to my childhood. The longer evenings, looking out of the window across the valley to the lights sprinkled on the hillside opposite us, winding up the steep incline of Tom's Lane and Primrose Hill sparkling starlight white and sodium gold. And this encroachment of night into my waking world presaged great events. The arrival of the fairground on the common, smelling sweet with candy floss and trodden straw and sticky with toffee apples and pulsed with noise and lights. Scavenging for conkers amid a blizzard of leaves. The clocks changing. Halloween. Bonfire night. The slow build-up to Christmas and then New Year. I don't know why, but somehow, for some reason, these fixed points of autumn, these autumn rites, always had a much bigger emotional impact on me than those of spring and summer, Easter and birthdays. 
Somehow these events were invested with deeper, more visually powerful imagery that rang in my imagination, a strange and distant music that captivated me. And they marked much more than just the turning of the year, but somehow formed significant chapter headings for the helical flow of my becoming. These old ceremonies link me back still to my pasts. And it all began with the falling of the colourful leaves, just as it is happening right now. Sycamore and chestnut, leaves as large as dinner plates and painted with such colour as beautiful as any Chinese lacquer work that I'd seen. Fluttering birch, and then ash tree tiddlers, lemon and lime green, set swimming on the blustering breeze. Oak gone woody and brittle, and the smell of earth and leaf mould and mist and wet bark, and flamed with fungus and the tang of blue wood smoke. There's a passage in Susan Hill's The Magic Apple Tree that expresses this so well. There's a smell in the air, the smell of autumn, a yeasty, damp, fruity smell, carrying a hint of smoke and a hint, too, of decay. And it fills me with nostalgia, but I do not know for what. And I look around here and I wonder what the seven-year-old me would have thought of all of this. The daily visits by the swans, as faithful as spaniels, as punctual as collies and as focused as labradors. And they even wag their tails when greeted, although I'm not convinced the message conveyed is exactly the same and the heaving autumn skies arrowed by starlings, roistered by rooks and jackdaws, harried by magpies and set afire by goldfinch. Skies with the busyness of this time of year, resolute flights of ducks, purposeful, deliberate, beautifully economic in the routes that they take, and then the fluid chevron sky dances of geese, smoky and live. The fox now blends perfectly with her russet red homeland. Her coat, the colour of dried bracken and just as wild, ghosts around the field edges, alert and as silent as velvet, unconcerned with the sharp chit-chit warning of the invisible blackbirds. Rabbits hop, pause and dart. Sheep nuzzle the grass that in summer was thigh-high. Kingfishers throw javelins of dragonfly blue lightning down the length of the canal side. I've not seen the herons for a while, apart from in dreams. But then I've not been to my normal haunts. Oh, and the white duck has been back. And it's been half-term, and that has seen a busyness return to the canal, although the strong winds and the heavy squalls of rains have certainly curtailed the activity to some extent. And the walkers now tend to be the serious variety, 
clad in full foul-weather gear and sporting bulging racksacks and walking poles. Rather than the little family affairs out for an afternoon stroll, pushing buggies and just walking to the next corner. Oh, all right, we'll go to the next one and then turn around. But undoubtedly the biggest bit of news here is that one of our boating neighbours has given birth to a beautiful little girl, Vivian. So congratulations to Kaylee and Chris, and really warm welcome into the world, little Vivian. We've not been down to see her yet, we've not been very well, so it's not been fair to, to go down. But it's great to have you in the world. It's been a bit of a tough week this week. A combination of things have culminated in first me and then both of us feeling really lousy. And this has meant that the past week has been more in the nature of survival or just buckling down to get done what's needed to be done rather than doing anything else. The possibility of us both being ill on a boat at the same time was one of the scenarios that we considered when talking about getting a boat and moving aboard. And although neither of us are anywhere near being incapacitated, the fact is being ill on a boat is pretty much like being ill anywhere. You feel fairly wretched, and that's pretty much it. Being in a more confined space doesn't seem to cause any problems. I suppose what is a little bit more difficult is that the routine jobs still need to be done. Toilet cassettes need to be emptied and changed, rubbish disposed of, water topped up. And apart from finding the walk up the hill to the Elson and rubbish point a bit harder, one of my feet has been playing up due to a reaction to some medication, as much as fatigue really. In actual fact, completing these jobs hasn't been particularly onerous. I suppose one of the hardest things about when you're not feeling your best is that you can begin to feel negative about everything. And although I've deleted most of the news feeds and quite a bit of social media from my mobile devices, even so it's easy to get a bit downhearted about everything that's going on. This week has felt particularly like being on the receiving end of some fairly hefty body blows. But one advantage of getting older is the realisation that quite often one's state of mind can be influenced by such transitory things like emotions or tiredness or just low blood sugar. And that what might seem like an indomitable mountain ahead of you at one moment, quite often after a bath or a good sleep, becomes eminently scalable and quite an exciting challenge. <laughs> For all of that, I have really appreciated all your comments and congratulations on our reaching the 100th episode. And also for your really encouraging words about my poetry. Don't worry, I, I don't feel negative about it. It's just a matter of exploring and finding out what works for you. But your words did make a hard week much brighter, so thank you. So thank you to Steve Tyrrell and Eldon Slick, Joe Brown, Rita He, Laurie and Bodie, and a big love and a hug to Bodie, Arlene Kettering, Sherry Rauch, David Keating, Mark and Tricia from the Wannabes, 
Derek and Pauline Watts, Vanessa, Andy Griffey. Thank you. You've really all given me a real boost and I have appreciated it. And another post that really cheered me up was from Rory with MJ and Kayla. Hi both. And hello Rory. And I love the photographs of you collecting rocks and shells on a beach where you were wearing some rather splendid bright blue gumboots. Caroline would be really envious of you. And I'm sorry, Rory, that I live so far away because I would have loved to have seen what you found. And it looks a grand beach to look for some particularly nice shells and rocks on. I began this episode by describing how this time of year puts me in mind of my past. Perhaps it's also something about being unwell that does that too. Remembering being tucked up in bed. Thermometers with those hair-thin silver threads of mercury that rose and fell. Being thrust under your tongue. And don't bite it. Propped up on piles of cushions and pillows. And the heap of old comics and annuals that teetered on the ocean swell of my bed and the rubbery smell of hot water bottles, and Thamel's cough syrup, which boasted creosote as an active ingredient, and it was worth getting ill just to lick every last drop off the big serving spoon on which it was ladled. Or that clean, sharp, oily scent of eardrops that some years seemed to almost nightly be dropped into my aching ears. Listening to the sound of mum downstairs in the kitchen, or the whine and roar of the hoover, and the ever-present radio playing. It's funny how many memories being ill can conjure. It's not that I was ill that often, though I did have trouble with my ears when I was young. And the thing is that I, I can't ever remember really feeling ill, just the special feeling that being ill created. I can even remember vividly some of the hallucinations that I had when I had measles and I was about four years old, but I can't remember what it was like to have measles. Although, having contracted chickenpox in my late twenties, I imagine that it was far from pleasant. And perhaps that's why my thoughts have been gravitating to my childhood so much. Partly the time of the year, but also partly that feeling of just wanting to sink into bed with a pile of comics and to listen unconcerned to the world continuing around me. And also that familiar roaring pain in my ears and the side of my face that eventually culminated in a particularly painful abscess in my jaw also helped to draw my mind back to those days of eardrops and visits to the doctor to see why my ears were so painful. Visits to the village surgery that was beside the fishmonger's shop, where the hearing-impaired fishmonger used to sing song orders back to us before wrapping it up in sheets of white paper. And my sister and I used to practice his half a pound of coalie when we got home. But whatever the reason, this time of year seems to exert a powerful hold on many of us. Susan Hill, again from The Magic Apple Tree, writes how, despite being told that 
to shift her affections from autumn to spring and summer, she found it impossible to do so. She writes, They said as I grew older that I should recoil from it. That's this love of autumn. The winding down of another year, the descent toward winter, the end of summer pleasures, that I'll begin to shift my affections towards spring when all is looking forward, all is blossoming and greening and sprouting up. But I do not do so. Spring so often promises what in the end it never pays. Spring can cheat and lie and disappoint. You can sit at the window and wait for spring many a weary day. But I've never been let down by autumn. To me, it's always beautiful, always rich. It always gives in heaping measure, and sometimes it can stretch on into November, fading, but so gently, so slowly, like a very old person whose dying is protracted, but peacefully, in calmness. And I love the wild days of autumn. The west winds that rock the apple tree and bring down the leaves and the fruit and the nuts in showers, and the rain after the days of summer dryness. I love the mists and the first frosts that make ground crisp and whiten the foliage of the winter vegetables. Soon, perhaps, over one wild night, the last of the leaves on our magic apple tree will be sent swirling away and on the bare branches there will hang here and there the last few shriveling fruits, and finally those two will thud to the ground and burst open and rot gradually into the soil, or else be taken by the birds, getting hungrier now that cold has come. And on that morning, whenever it comes, the autumn will be over. And these rites of autumn, strange customary markers and fixed points, become so much more significant than their origins. They still flare brightly in the orbit of my years. It's never been about the parties, or the dressing up, or meeting up. The embers of a bonfire, hissing in the drizzle of midnight, has always touched me far deeper than the fireworks that promised so much in their brightly coloured boxes, and the smell of a guttering candle stub in a swede head is always somehow much more important than processions of miniature witches and ghosts and a fistful of penny sweets. And this weekend, the clocks change, time slipping back an hour. And the merits, or otherwise, of British summer time aside, there's something astounding to me about that. That tiny household ritual, when you consciously and physically, although perhaps a little less today, turn back time. The opening of a door to let the dark evenings of winter in, welcoming it. Love it or loathe it, 
This moment each year when we move from summertime to wintertime is one of those occasions that make us more acutely aware of the concept of time. For a number of years I was the clockwinder for the village church where we lived. And the times when the clocks change seemed to be filled with special import to me, and I looked upon them with something of an air of excitement and a strange sense of responsibility. I wanted to always get it right. In some ways the transitions from summer and winter times emphasise the arbitrary nature of time, that construct that we humans impose upon our lives and our worlds, something that can be changed and altered at will. And yet there's also a deeper sense, something that lies underneath our attempts to regulate and contain. And that physicality of holding back time in the autumn by stopping the clock for one hour, which is much the easiest way to reset time, offered a wonderful window into this experience. And up there in the clock tower, watching over the sleeping village, living through an hour which didn't exist, or did it? waiting up there, high above the village, where the clock had fallen silent. This is something I wrote about this experience. I think it was back in 2014 that I first wrote it. And it's called, Today I Held Back Time. Today I stopped the parish clock, and while the village slept, at the point where summertime falls back into winter, with one hand I held back time and let seconds fly directionless and haphazard around the steeple tower like gnats dancing over a summer pond. The iron hand stood frozen on each moonish clock face at five minutes to the mute silent hour. Instead of rounded golden chimes rolling out over field and rooftop, there was silence, and the pigeons in the bell chamber slept on undisturbed. And all I heard was the beating of the wind against the tower, as I rubbed shoulders with God and angels in this place beyond time. For a while I watched the village slumber from the unlatched door high up on the side of the old stone tower. A guardian of this time of no time. The ticking watch on my wrist counted out the untrod minutes upon which no one had yet walked or loved or danced. And in that silence I tasted each moment, those seconds, those minutes, those precious quarter hours that those below had yet to live. Is this what it feels like to be God 
to be standing here, in the dark, alone, outside time. Is this the eternity of which my soul dreams? Where seconds are born, then slow back upon themselves to be reborn later? Or is this just the world of the wilder things? The fox, hare and badger, those that run as wild as wind, unaware of the clock not ticking or the hands not moving? For an hour, with one hand, I held back time and set eternity loose among the streets and alleyways, and the village below me slept on, unknowing. And my eye travelled up to the smudge of woodland on a high brow of hill, where eternity always breaks in. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night and wishing you a very restful, peaceful night. Good night. Temperature outside, 15.7 degrees. Inside, 22 degrees. Humidity, 69%. Viewpoint, 12 degrees. Wind direction, south. Wind strength, 16 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1010.5, rising. Cloud cover, 91%. Cloud ceiling, 13,100 feet. Precipitation, 2.54 millimeters. Moon phase, 23.7%. Waxing crescent. Day length, 9 hours, 47 minutes. Sunset, 17.44 Skycasting, 6.59